Listener Production. G'day, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. This week on Crime Insiders Detectives, an officer whose trailblazing work in police medicine has saved hundreds of lives. I think the simplest thing is, is they're trying to kill and hurt as many people as possible. So one super simple thing that we can do is save as many people as we can. Queensland Police Sergeant Dustin Osborne is one of the best examples of how proactive policing can not only prevent crime, but save lives. We have to turn around and apply basic interventions to the wounded to stop them dying. There's nothing that shows better levels of empathy than kneeling down and providing aid to someone. Dustin's passion for police medicine began just a year out of the academy, back in 2009. It was then he received a life-changing call about a violent job in Brisbane. about one o'clock on a Monday morning. We were very much in that pack up and go home after a seven night stint of night work. The call come through on the radio that a male person had been really badly beaten and run over by a car. So being very green and uh, very new to the job, I was sort of instantly pushed into that, that huge sort of adrenaline dump mode. We were at the station when the job details come through and you can really tell by your adrenaline levels when you don't know where the streets are. So we've been going to Gotha Street very regularly from the station for months on end. And then when they detailed the jobs, Gotha Street, the first thing that I realized where my stress was at the absolute peak is I had no idea where Gotha Street was. So we mapped it out and we shot over there. We got out of the car. I looked to under the portico where the single victim was. And it was sort of at that point in time where you look at the job details that they've come through, you look at your expectations and you get confronted with the actual victim themselves. And none of those worlds actually collide until you're there and until you're actually looking at it. So what I was basically confronted with was a a male person who, when I actually saw them initially, and the only thing I could sort of work out was they looked of Asian appearance and they had a very strange color about them. And I'm like, well, this is going to be hard to sort of work out who we're dealing with. And it was then later in time, and it's, you know, years and years later that I've actually worked out since that, that wasn't anything to do with their personal characteristics. That was just a result of the actual trauma. Moving towards the victim, I had no idea what I was actually looking at, even what I was doing. And it was the most confusing, confronting thing that I think could have been put through at that actual stage. And moving into that, 
where you've got zero confidence and zero competence to actually do anything, that realization that you are just member of the public wearing a pretty fancy shirt and a tooled out belt, you're just nothing more. There was this sort of strange sense that I don't know if he's actually going to live. I need to do something to try and promote that he does. But at the same time, I don't know where to start. I've got this weird sort of idea of I need to be worried about spinal mobilization. I need to be worrying about airways. I've got all this real antiquated sort of facts in my head from doing standard first aid as part of my recruit training or running around, but none of it means a thing. So that was probably the most confronting thing. And the, the biggest realization for me was everything you've learned is useless right now. Doesn't do anything for you. The injuries that he had, the more I cleaned out, the more come out. And I, it got to the point where I'm just like, am I hurting this person? Am I making it worse? I don't even know what I'm doing at this point in time. And it was just a matter of, you know what, the best I can do is probably leave him in the recovery position and just try and help him breathe with whatever he's able to breathe with. That whole moment for me, it felt like it lasted hours, but in reality, it was only a couple of seconds. And then the QAS turned up, which was probably the biggest godsend for, for everyone involved because, yeah, I had no idea what I was doing. The QAS does um, been the Queensland Ambulance Service. So they, they arrived some minutes after yourself and your partner arrived at the scene. Yeah, that's right. So when the initial calls come through from the witnesses, they obviously detail what had happened. So they dispatch police and ambulance at the same time. We had probably about two or three minutes where it was just us dealing with that patient. And then when the ambulance turned up, they still have to go through their procedures of setting up, getting their kit ready and moving forward like that. So even though the ambulance are on scene, they still need to set up and that's still pushed back onto you as the uh, the first responder. So yeah, that moment sort of, uh, that's sort of one of those feelings that sort of stuck with me most of all. Not so much the actual scene of it and the injuries that that person was exposed to, but the feeling of just pure inadequacy and no competence. As that investigation started to unfold, Dustin, what had caused those injuries? What had caused that incident? The offender and the victim were actually friends. The offender had belief that he, the victim, may have been actually seeing his ex-partner. So they've gone out for drinks to obviously discuss what was going on and how everything was going. It seemed it may have been amicable at one point. Um, However, there was a phone call made by the offender to that female, basically making a request for her to come downstairs and and speak to both of them. Um, That was refused. And when that was refused, that's been the, the real catalyst to the, to the violence. You're obviously focused with the victim. The offender has decamped in, in a vehicle. What happens next with regards, was he apprehended or what, what happened following that? Yeah, so after the offender has run over the victim, he's just driven off. He's left Fortitude Valley. And he's headed in towards uh, the Brisbane city. From memory, he's, he's taken a, a turn down Mary Street and as he sort of I think he was basically just lost, but he's also heavily intoxicated as well. So he's ended up crashing the car into a tree, started to walk away, and then just purely by chance, uh, 
some Australian Federal Police were just doing a, a drive through the city for some reason. They saw the crash car and stopped to see if everyone was all right, having no idea of what had just prevailed in Fortitude Valley. So the offender was still very close to the car. So he just walked up to him and said, hey, I think you're looking for me. He spoke to the federal police initially, who then quickly got on to the Queensland police, uh, who were responding straight away. Fender, he, he just went to the Queensland police, asked about what was happening. And in that sort of conversation, he, um, he asked if the other guy was dead. And if he wasn't, do you mind dropping him back so I can finish the job? What was the outcome, final outcome of that case with regards to the the victim himself and also the offender? In that case, the QAS response to the victim on that uh, incident was, I guess, was as much shock and as or as I was, I was exposed to. So the ambulance in that section didn't, um, they call stay and play or load and go. And that was by all means a load and go incident. So Probably one of the the major points to it is the hospital was literally, you could see the the tip of the hospital from where we were almost. So they literally packaged the victim and went straight to hospital into uh, resuscitation and corrective surgery. So strangely enough, years and years went on where the court case was pulled on and on through various strange forms of defense that was being pushed up at the time. Years later, the offender was found guilty of attempted murder and stealing the car and various other sort of offences that were on the peripheral of that incident. And completely to my surprise, while I was in court providing evidence, the next witness was the victim himself who walked into the court and provided his own evidence and account of that incident. You mentioned you weren't confronted so much by the injuries per se, but more that total feeling of inadequacy, of being powerless to help him and feeling like that the first day training that you had received at the academy was almost useless in that situation. Did that feeling stay with you after the job? Absolutely. Yep. One sort of thing that I always sort of come back to is if you were to open a person up in sort of like a an anatomy section, it'd be very, very graphic for someone. But for a surgeon, that's their day job. And why is that? Like, what's the difference? Well, it's a huge amount of training and education and understanding of what you're looking at and what you're doing. They don't flinch at it because they know what's going on. Whereas when we turn up, we don't have that. We don't have that knowledge. We don't have that understanding. For me, it's always come back to knowledge, education, and how that creates actual capacity to do our job. After this job, and obviously, um, yeah, general duties, you're, you're attending jobs, perhaps not to that level all the time, but jobs of that nature, be they car accidents, be they fatals, be they assaults. And as you go forward through that, Dustin, did you start to sort of educate yourself? Did you take it upon yourself to increase your knowledge in this area as, as you've just been highlighting there? Yeah, absolutely. So that was one of my big takeaway points. And what I did to actually, um, if it's the right word, to sort of self-soothe after it. So as to go, okay, well, what is the issue here? It's not the scene. doesn't really worry me too much. But how do I take this feeling 
that I've got now and what I'm sitting with and actually correct that and to prevent that from occurring in the future. So I started going down the line of speaking to you know, very informal, almost anecdotal training where I'm speaking to ambulance officers, I'm grilling the ED doctor in the triage departments. And then after that as well, I started to do more actual formal education as well and jumping on courses, looking at equipment that's simple, easy to carry, easy to deploy, um, and sort of what interventions I can apply to big ticket um, life-threatening critical injuries to make the most beneficial improvements to that person's health in, in the short term while we wait for the, like the real McCoy to turn up. And at this point, is it fair to say, Dustin, that this was in no way connected to Queensland Police? This was very much your own personal crusade, might be too strong a word, but it was more for your own, for yourself, wasn't it? Did you start to take some additional kit with you out in those general duties cars and things such as that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So definitely my own sort of, um, look, I hate using the word, but it was definitely my own journey to uh, to pick up on and run with the kit. It's definitely never been issued before. So before we moved forward to where we are now, the kit that I used to carry was super simple. It was basic sort of crepe bandages, tourniquets, things like that. Just cheap, easy wins. So I acquired them myself, learned how to use them myself, and um, I kept them on me. And they definitely come in handy later on in various jobs that sort of come up later on. Dustin, can you explain what led to it then being taken up by Queensland Police? How did that unfold? That's a massive jump. So the reality is, is throughout my policing career, I've always been heavily focused on training. It's always been a, a passion of mine to to drive forward skills and capabilities. So from the actual police point of view, since about 2011, I've always been working on becoming an internal instructor with the police uh, within all our skills and operational sort of tactics. So I've always worked on that. What that led me to do was become part of our active armed defender project team in 2016, which was the Queensland Police's answer to the 2015 Paris attacks, where we saw the you know multifaceted violence, firearms, knives, bombs, all occurring on one night in Paris. So when the Australian media sort of come to the, all the policing agencies throughout Australia and said, hey, what are you going to do to it to address this? That's where we come in and said, well, we're going to create the Active Armed Defender Project. We're going to train our officers all throughout the state on how to resolve these issues. So I was lucky enough and fortunate enough to actually be selected to work as part of that team. So that took me off the road for pretty much 2016, where we developed a skills base in our curriculum teams to train officers and provide them with the knowledge and the understanding of how to actually attend these incidences, move forward towards where the offenders are and resolve that incident. The big issue that I saw with that capability though was we're turning up. That's great. That's the biggest part. We then move forward to the offender. We stop the offender. But that's our mission priorities. Like that's what we're there to do. 
what I think that a lot of the services failed to do in this sense was actually flip the card around and go, this is what we're doing, but what's the offender trying to do? What's the offender mission priorities here? Because these people don't wake up in the morning and go, hey, I'm going to go do this. This would be a really good thing to do. There's normally months to years of planning that goes into these incidents. So if we don't look at what the offender's mission priorities are, then we're not going to understand of how to affect them and negate them as best as possible. And I think the simplest thing is, is they're trying to kill and hurt as many people as possible. So one super simple thing that we can do is save as many people as we can. So after we move forward and stop the offender, we have to turn around and apply basic interventions to the wounded to stop them dying. And that by virtue of what we're doing, stops their mission priorities of killing people. So with that in mind and sort of that different angle to look at it, I really started to push forward and go, hey, we need to do something about this. We've got a big duty of care. We know no ambulance service within the Australasian Pacific region would respond to this. So what are we going to do in the interim? We have a duty of care. We need to do something. So I worked really closely with our project team manager, worked really closely with my boss at the time who ran the unit. And um, he took a massive chance and a massive risk to go, I agree, let's do something. And he kept me on at the office for probably about another six months, longer than he should have and could have, but he did. And... Um, I was able to write the tactical uh, first aid package within that time, which looked at how to stop life-threatening trauma and keep people alive until QAS can arrive. So 2016, you were taken off away from general duties and, and you assisted and, and were part of a team to put this program together. So it was implemented sometime after that. And, and how did they implement the training across 10,000 police? Because that's a pretty big undertaking, isn't it? Yeah, it's massive, but it really just folded into how we, we do our training normally. So mm. I worked with the curriculum office. We made a very simple, basic, quickly replicatable training package with the actual equipment that you need to use. And we put that together in a in a package that takes four hours to teach. And then I instructed a cohort of instructors who then went out throughout Queensland and trained the rest of the staff in their area. So within a six-month period, we had the package written. I had trained all of our trainers. And then within a one-year period throughout all of Queensland, we trained over 10,000 police. Was there much in the way of upgrading the first aid equipment in those general duties vehicles from from what had been in place before? Yeah, it definitely wasn't an upgrade. It was a re well, it was a full implementation. So mm. we placed into the Queensland Police Service Fleet. So all of our cars, motorbikes, boats, and horses, if you will, um, they all got yeah. basically tourniquets, modular bandaged with wound packing material, chest seals, and our uh, trauma shears. So it's a very, very simple kit, but um, each piece of kit in there has been purely selected to stop the causes of death that occur within that first five minutes.
Now, Dustin, can I take you back to 2015? You've just received a call about an armed robbery in Brisbane CBD. Can you walk us through what happened and the details of that case? Before that incident, I was working a um, afternoon shift. Pretty bland to walk into work for a Wednesday afternoon shift. You don't expect to to get much more than a decent coffee and something to eat later on. So we went out, started our patrols, and the call came over the radio for an armed robbery in progress. So we initially took the job and then we just had to just do the the big battle and drive through peak hour traffic trying to get there. Yeah, you always get a bit of adrenaline dump when you hear a armed robbery in progress at a jewellery store as well. It sounds very Hollywood. Certainly something that I hadn't ever responded to before in my time. Got out of the car, walked over to the front door of the jewellery store and I sort of looked through the window and the store was empty, but there was a guy just sort of lingering in the middle of the actual jewellery store, which is just a very small little glass-fronted shop. And then looking more into the room, I actually saw that this guy is completely covered in blood. I looked down at the ground and there was just literal bloody footprints all through the actual shop. So I'm sort of going through that thing of, well, okay, the the offence has been committed. This is now a crime scene, but who's this guy? We've got blood everywhere. There's like legitimate footprints. Like this is a crime scene haven here. I don't want to destroy this. So sort of pulled the door open. I said to the guy that was standing inside, I said, mate, just just come out, come, come to me. And he was completely out of it. Um, he was very unresponsive to our sort of voices, to our directions, but he, he ended up coming to us. And as soon as he got out to the store, it started to click in a place that this person was the victim and, and obviously the jewelry store owner. And then the more I actually looked at him, I was like, this guy has stab wounds everywhere. So I got him just to lay straight down on the ground. I cut his shirt off. I cut his pants off and he was peppered with stab wounds. He was stabbed in the face all the way down the torso, in the hands, in the wrists, in the bum, back of the legs, and even had stab wounds in the soles of his feet. I'm like, this is just next level. So I sort of thought, okay, well, I've learned a lot from that very first case where I had no idea of what to do with someone who was critically ill. And I'd, at this point, I've been spending a lot of time going through, trying to understand trauma, the physiology behind it, also looking at anatomy, where our major organs are in comparison to the external of our person. And looking at this guy, I'm like, okay, he's got a slit wrist with a, a really bad bleed on it. So I was able to stop that straight away by bandaging it up with using equipment that I've bought for myself and I'm carrying now. The next thing that really stood out to me was just above his left collarbone, he had a major sucking chest wound. So he'd been stabbed downward over the collarbone straight into his lung. And it was a very significant injury that was really badly affecting his breathing. And I hadn't had any equipment to to fix this, but I knew that the best thing to do was just to roll him on the side with that bad lung and that injured lung closest to the ground to let gravity do its work. So we did that and we continued to assess him for any other sort of major bleeds. From memory, he was stabbed about 46 times, just all over his entire body. The offender jumped the counter and continued to to stab the, the owner. 
just all over. It was such a ferocious attack that it actually knocked the batteries out of the clock on the adjoining wall to the sushi shop that was next door. So we were able to work out the exact time it happened because the clock was frozen next door. Um, he then was disturbed mid-attack by a worker from the sushi shop. He's jumped the counter, which at that point now we know that he was only wearing thongs. So when he's jumped the counter, he's actually jumped out of his thongs, stood in all the puddles of blood, ran out of the shop, tried to attack the sushi shop worker. She barricaded herself back inside and then the offender has run off back towards the city. And that was perfectly illustrated by bloody footprints left running towards the city. What happens now with you? What happens with the offender? Was he apprehended? What was your involvement moving forward from there? So my involvement from there was we um, continued to work with the victim and QIS until they had set up, got everything ready, and were able to transport the victim straight up to the hospital. From that point, we needed to lock down the entire area, which was already in the process to start with. And I had a really good team around me for that job, which was amazing because there's so many elements to these jobs that no one person can ever think of everything to do, do everything and manage it all. My initial focus was straight to the victim. My partner's focus was also to the victim as well. And then everyone that turned up after that just sort of rolled into natural processes like we need to shut the footpath down. We need to keep people out. We need to identify victims. We need to identify witnesses. We need to understand what's going on. Fortitude Valley and Brisbane City has always had an extensive uh, camera system throughout the whole area. So straight away, we've got crews calling the office that manages those cameras going, find me what's just happened. Get me footage of it. I'm coming to look at it now. So once we did all that, established that it was a crime scene, locked the crime scene down. I then spent quite a, a, a decent period of time basically just scratching through every single garden bed in the area looking for a potential weapon that was used in it. We never found anything. Fast forward to a couple of days later and as a result of the investigation, one of the key elements for this was to enter that jewellery store to look at the high-end products, you had to sign a register to get in and the offender had signed his name to get in. So it wasn't exactly super sleuth detective work that got it. I know the detectives who did it and they are amazing people, but in this case, it was a pretty much a walk-up. So they went around to his address several days later and he answered the door and the first things out of his mouth was, yeah, you, I know you're, uh, take it, you're looking for me. They're like, yep. I guess I'll grab my stuff and let's go. And that was it. The victim of that attack survived. I mean, goodness, you're almost treating that like a potential homicide scene, aren't you, with that degree of injuries? Yeah, and the other component that sort of complicated things as well is a 64-year-old victim. So the age component of it as well obviously made things worse for his injury profiles, his recovery, his rehabilitation, all those things. Like if you were to receive injuries like that to a 20-year-old who was fit, healthy, whereas you do that to a 64-year-old male with some, some health complications and it's a very long, hard road to recovery which is one of those things that I've always taken into account with doing tactical first aid is in that job, that person with or without my help 
pretty well would have lived till the ambulance got there. But the component that I look at is the interventions that I've done have expediated his recovery. They've made his ability to recover, to rehabilitate, and to get back to life quicker. And that's one of the big things that I think we need to focus on as an organization and as a service is you're not going to save every life because not every life's in dire straits. However, if we can put a tourniquet on, stop someone bleeding, then instead of spending four days in intensive care, they spend one. And at $6,500 a day in intensive care, that's a pretty good deal. It's a big, big hit off the health service. It's more about just saving lives. It's about improving lives, enabling the person's living standards and, and overall sort of quality of life. Dustin, if I can take you back 2020. Now, by this stage, Dustin, the Tactical First Aid Project, of which you've done a lot of work on and spoken to us about in some detail, it's been up and running for about three years now, 2020. Can you just give us a bit of an overview of where that program's at, what it's achieved um, now that we're rolling into uh, to 2020? Yeah, so since 2017, um, the Tactical First Aid curriculum uh, so the skills and equipment has been taught every year through our annual qualifications. Initially, it was met with a, probably a little bit of resistance from police, but now there's a, a real big appetite for it. People are seeing it being used out on the road, seeing the benefits of it. We're seeing an increase in overall resilience and mental health and well-being of police officers that are using it. They're saving lives. By this stage... We've used probably over 200 applications of the skills and saved in excess of probably 40 to 45 lives by the end of 2020. One of our biggest achievements and probably one of the things that I do hold a lot of pride in is we were nominated and awarded winners uh, of the World Class Policing Awards in London for a brand new initiative that's directly saving lives in a policing environment. That's amazing in such a short period of time. And can I just pick up on a point that you made there? Obviously, the focus of this program is to render first aid to critically injured victims at crime scenes. You mentioned there too the, the flow-on benefit uh, to police who are able to render that first aid to prepare those victims for the arrival of the AMBOs and, and the benefit to those police. And perhaps you yourself have experienced that. Can you just explain that to us? So it's a little bit of a two-folder. One of the things I did in the initial rollout of tactical first aid training was to actually team up with Griffith University and do proper study and research off the curriculum. So what we we're able to prove was that training people with the adequate skills and then giving them a, the actual equipment to do it, we have the ability to greatly increase confidence and competence in officers, which is a massive thing. So we understand that uh, an officer who is overconfident but undercompetent is dangerous, which is fair in any trade, I feel. And then if you've got someone who's uh, overcompetent but lacks confidence, well, they're not really good to anyone because they don't do anything. So what we were doing is the training, the equipment was aligning confidence and competence to make adequately skilled and trained officers who were moving forward and making big differences at jobs. 
And that's one of the major successes for it. In doing that as well, what we were finding was that officers were feeling uh, operationally and also organisationally supported to have skills that made a difference to, to their colleagues. We've saved police lives as well with this training. And they were saving their mates. They were saving good people who were caught up in bad incidences. And they were also applying the skills to people who were displaying bad behaviour and stopping them doing that in police use of force experiences, but not having to to go through the entire coronial inquest, not having to live with the fact that I've just shot and killed someone because they can actually move forward and render aid. So one of the the bonuses that we saw with this, which was very much an add-on, was that there was a big resilience seen in police who were applying these skills. I can contest to it personally. From that very first job that I went to, like that was devastating. And, and the feeling that I got from that, walking away from it, knowing that I was pretty much useless at that job. I was just one of the best dressed bystanders in my fancy blue shirt and funky belt, but I couldn't do anything. I was useless. To moving forward to now, where I've got basic skills, pretty good understanding and knowledge of what these traumas are, we're moving in, we're saving lives, and we're going home on a high instead of a, a horrendous low that lasts for weeks, months, and potentially ends careers. Let's look at 2020. I'd imagine you're still in a general duties capacity. You get called to a mental health case. Can you just walk us through that? Yeah, so I guess in, in complete stark contrast to the first job is I'm now trained. I've done various trauma courses. I've got official skills, qualifications, and I'm also equipped so we're doing a, a standard afternoon patrol. We receive a, a call for a mental health patient who has committed self-harm, and it's unknown whether it's a serious bleed or it's not. So we proceed to that job. It was in a, uh, a local boarding house that had direct conditions that ambulance would not enter unless police were with them because it was an extremely violent sort of block of units. So we turn up to the job. It's a bit of a forced entry. The person's inside. We can actually hear them inside. They're in that nonverbal state where they can moan and groan, but they can't do much else. So we pop the door and we go in and there's the mental health patient who has really, really badly cut his left forearm the amount of blood loss was was very significant to the point that it was pulled on the on the carpet and was actually heavily raised. And when I actually started to treat him, I was leaving complete footprints in the in the blood on the ground. But in that instance, I was able to stop the bleed by applying a, a very basic sort of wound packing methodology to his arm uh, and then bandaging it, which is super simple when you think about it. There's nothing surgical team about it. It's just the, the the bare basics, quite frankly. But we're able to then stop the bleed, completely check that person for any further tertiary injuries that they may have inflicted. We didn't find any further uh, injuries. We're able to check his airway, make sure his chest was functioning well. There was no nothing else that was going to be a bother to us. We secured the area and then we escorted the ambulance in. And then they did everything else that we couldn't. If you're not there, 
to provide that first aid, he bleeds out and, and he's deceased. There's no two ways around that. But the calmness in your persona there, going into a job of that nature without adequate training, adds to that stress, adds to that sort of trauma, call it what you will, quite a contrast. When you have that skill, that knowledge, that training, when you're driving to the job, my attention is on getting there. It's not clouded and clustered by all these other tertiary thoughts that are purely generated by panic and are completely involuntary. And that's one of the big things that I don't think sort of services look at when we need to get to a job first. And without the adequacy of training, it's so hard just to get there because we've got to think of 15 different policies on how we drive. We've got to think about actually surviving the drive. But while we're doing it, we're also thinking, what's my enter approach and search techniques for getting in that place? If you're not confident with it, that's in your head straight away. How am I, am I a good shot? Do I need to consider this? Because he's, they're armed. Do I need to consider that? How do I shoot? What's my process for doing that? The more confidence you've got in those independent skill sets, it just allows bandwidth to come back to you to actually go through those little baby steps just from getting from point A to point B and then getting that job done. Cognitive bandwidth at jobs is super, super important to stay focused, to stay relevant, to stay in a situational awareness state where you can pick up everything that's going on around you. If you're not trained, you can't do it. If you're freaking out, you're no good to anyone. And the only way you're going to do that is by going through and having adequacy of training and drilling what you're doing and getting good at it. Sure, there's a lot of things that have got experience behind that. I've been doing this job for 15 years now and I still need a lot of work. So Dustin, just as we come into a bit of a landing here, can you just share with us where this whole concept of police medicine from its early stages intervention training, where is it sitting now and has it spread beyond the Queensland border or where's that whole concept sitting now? Yeah, so police medicine is something that is definitely branching out and it's becoming a lot bigger. So there are states within Australia who are promoting it quite well. There are others that are looking at it and and moving forward into that space. Um, I also work on the Australian Tactical Medicine Association as the co-chair of the Law Enforcement Working Group, which is a bit of a mouthful. But the whole purpose of that is to create a community of like-minded officers, military medics, ambulance that want to work and understand that there is a a very much value in working for quality outcomes for patients in austere environments. For me personally, my opinion is we need to have police medics. We need to have police medicine. It is the absolute bottom dollar in doing our job and supporting that humanitarian effort that we actually work for every day. People who are in vulnerable positions, who are fall victim to violence, ultimately it is our job to reduce and minimise that as much as possible. We try and hold offenders to account. When we're in that process of holding offenders to account, 
our job is to get them before the courts. We're not the judge, we're not the jury, and we're definitely not the executioner. So if we do get forced into a position where we have to apply use of force, I think it'd be absolutely crazy for any police service not to have the skills and the capability to reverse the effects of those use of forces that have been applied to actually render aid to that person. We need to stop the person's behavior. We're not saying that they're mad, they're bad, they're sad, or anything in between. What we're saying is you're creating a definite threat to someone right now, be it myself, my partner, or a member of the public, or anyone else. We have to stop that. But it doesn't mean that that needs to be the end point, and we should promote that person's health and well-being to actually then move them to that next phase of that justice system. Without having police medicine, obviously we're going to fail in that that area. In the essence of working with victims, that's just a no-brainer. You know, ambulance are reactive. We get that police are proactive. We're going to be there, so why not start early? Let's promote their health. There's nothing that shows better levels of empathy than kneeling down and providing aid to someone. And I think that's what police medicine ultimately is at the end of the day, is just a manifestation of empathy and helping people out in their worst time, at their worst state and in their worst element of health. Dustin, I just want to thank you so very much for uh, taking the time to chat with us. Could I say, Dustin, few, if any, police can claim credit for a, a concept or an idea, a system, call it what you will, that to date has saved over 150 lives, which otherwise would have been lost. Dustin, I just want to thank you for your service to date, and I have no doubt that the Queensland Police and others will continue to benefit from your focus around this uh, as you move forward in your career. Thanks so much for dropping in. Have a chat to us. Thanks so much. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly.